All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor Maggie Robertson about cassette tapes, VHS, theater, Resident Evil Village, the internet's interesting reaction to Lady D, and more. As always, thank you for listening. And if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. It has come to my attention that you are in need of entertainment. Well then, perhaps you should listen to more monsters, madness, and magic. (laughs) Or you'll be sliced to ribbons. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Oh, this is fun. I've never started an interview like this before. So kudos. I was a book reader and a fort builder. I was afraid of getting in trouble a little too much. (laughs) But I was always dirty. I was always covered in some sort of mud. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have a genre or a writer that you leaned towards when you were reading growing up? Yes, I pretty much predominantly and still predominantly read fantasy and then I dabble in the realm of sci-fi, but fantasy is my home, which is why I think you'll see in my catalog of work that there is a pretty natural affinity. I love living in these really big new worlds where I'm learning a complete new set of circumstances and environmental behaviors and blah, 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 blah. So I find world building quite fun and quite exciting was there a writer that you were close to growing up maybe uh like i grew up on the hardy boys and stuff like that so oh hell yeah (laughs) i also was a hardy boys over nancy drew reader for sure and i'm not sure why that is i must have just gotten my hands on those as opposed to nancy drew but i yeah love the hardy boys I haven't thought about them in years. This is fun. In terms of fantasy, I was a huge Anne McCaffrey reader. Uh, the Dragon Riders of Pern series was iconic and also, you know, strong female led, and that was exciting. Brandon Sanderson, Patrick Rothfuss. I just interviewed Michael Whalen. He was the artist on the uh, Anne McCaffrey series. Hey, you're ticking all my boxes here. <laughs> I know, that's right. You're I just rolling. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's so cool. I kind of love the nerdy community because the artists, the creatives, everyone that's in it, they're also nerds. They're also consumers of this media. So we're all fans of each other. I feel that's particularly true within video games. That was one of the first things I noticed, I think, that everyone in video games, in front of the camera, behind the camera, 
they all play games. They're all fans of the games and they're all so supportive of what everyone else is doing and looking forward to the other new IPs and whatever that's coming out. So it's really exciting to feel like you're a part of a community that is energized by each other's creative work in mm. that way. So that feels really special. But yes, nerddoms are fun because everyone's just geeking out about things and getting all jazzed and excited. <laughs> well said. Whereabouts did you grow up? Jazz. Uh, <laughs> I bopped around in my youth. I moved around a bit. So born in California, then moved to Houston, Texas, then moved to Richmond, Virginia, then moved to Northern Virginia, did college in Pennsylvania, went back to Virginia, then did grad school in London, then moved to LA. So here we are. Was that because of your parents? Did you move around a lot because of work? Yeah, that was uh, because of my mom's job at the time. We moved around wherever she could get a job. So that that's that. Gotcha. Now, with either your parents, were either of them artistically inclined? Is that where you got it from? Nope. <laughs> nope. All no. original, huh? I guess. I there There is artistry within my family. My dad's side of the family has a few more musicians and of that ilk. My grandmother was a concert pianist. Uh, and my dad plays guitar. So I think that's where I get the musical leanings from. But yeah, definitely blazed a trail there within the family for sure. Do you play an instrument as well? I do. Uh, I started off as a singer actually before I even became an actor. So music was the my first key into creativity and studied classical, took classical voice lessons and got interested in all that. I play a little bit of guitar because I'm my dad and <laughs> I have a piano behind me as well. I don't advertise that I play piano because I really don't, but I'm good at plunking and I know what notes are in the chord. And so eventually I can find the chord and plunk out some chords on the piano. And I call that playing. But it's not glamorous at all. That's all you need uh, for a party trick. Exactly. I got two songs that I can comfortably play, and I'm not ashamed to bust them out <laughs> willy-nilly. <laughs> so, yeah, it's fun. As long as it stays fun, then that's all that counts. But, yeah, so started off with music and singing and then eventually fell into acting. But it's kind of interesting to look at my career in hindsight because the voice has really always been the cornerstone of what I do as an actor. It's been the cornerstone of my training. I think it's part of why voiceover was such a natural fit for me. I have a lot of flexibility and versatility with what I can do with my voice. So having an opportunity for me to really, I've always enjoyed playing with different sounds. And so that's really apparent in music, but also within voiceover, getting to create different character voices is really super fun. My background within acting, I trained in Shakespeare and classical acting as well. He's incredibly musical and rhythmic and oh, yeah. all of that was super fun for me to think about. And also the way he uses text is beyond just our, I guess, logical, rational, conscious understanding of what a word means. Oftentimes the words he's using are antiquated. We don't we don't have the same definitions or we just don't use that word anymore and perhaps don't even know what it means. Right. But what he's done with language is he's understood that our bodies are communicating and they have a language that they're communicating with each other, even if it's nonverbal and we're instinctually picking up cues and understanding, even if we're not 
logically understanding every word. So I love to figure out how things sound and what these sounds are, how the sounds of words are affecting physically the body. They have a physical effect on the body. And so how can I play with language and text in a way that uses sound effectively to generate a physical response? How do you approach that differently as to when you're physically in front of somebody on stage as opposed to being in the booth? I think I kind of do. I use a lot of the same principles, quite Mm. honestly. I am a very physical actor as well. That's part of what, what helps me access the information that my body is kind of naturally intuiting. So that's definitely a part of my theater training. When you're when you're on stage, you are being more expansive with your use of your body and how you're communicating. But when I'm in the booth, yes, I have to be more contained to stay kind of directly in front of the microphone. But you know, if I'm attacking somebody, I'm I'm you'll see me make these moments, these movements. And so it lives in my body as opposed to just acting from here up. Mm. It's a full body experience when I hope. That's my objective when I go into the booth or when I do any approach of acting. I want it to feel lived in my whole whole body. While we're kind of on the subject of music, what cassettes were playing around the house while you were growing up? You are going so old school vintage. I will tell you what, I had the Alanis Morissette cassette. (laughs) That was kind of on repeat. What else was it? I had one like funk. Oh, it was James Brown. (laughs) (laughs) that's I think the two that I vividly remember going back and forth and then before you even get the opportunity to ask me VHS here we go VHS I had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live action 90s and Liar Liar and I would watch them I'd finish Liar Liar I'd put in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles (laughs) I'd finish that I'd put Liar Liar back in and but 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 it was nonstop. I was obsessed me too Liar Liar the pen is blue (laughs) <laughs> it's blue. Oh God, he's so good. <laughs> you just mid-name two uh, TV shows, but when you think back in general to formative films and TV shows, what pops in your head? <laughs> Those two. Uh, uh, Lord of the Rings. Oh, that, big that's nerd. a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. So that that was a big one for sure. Not a big TV uh, show watcher. I watched a lot of Animal Planet. Same crocodile hunter. Noise, crikey! Uh, yeah, I think I was a little more restricted with what I was able to watch on television. So mm-hmm. growing up, it was really predominantly Animal Planet. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I loved it. So there you go. Now this is something I like to ask everyone, just because you never know. Uh, what scared you as a kid? Oh God, what scared me as a child? Let's see. Blah, 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 blah. I think. Ooh, I don't know. Maybe. Be ironically vampires because I think I watched an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode where they kind of creeped out of places. And then what I ended up doing to get over it was I had this little stuffed animal dog named Fluffy and I <laughs> made him a superhero cape and I put that around his neck and I had him set up there so he kind of protected me during the night. Man, so I loved Are You Afraid of the Dark too. Uh-huh. Do you ever watch So Weird? Yes, the Disney show. Yes. Love that show. There was an episode show. of that that I feel like I'm the only person that remembers. It was when they recast. They had some new I didn't like the recast. Person. I didn't like the I recast. Know. Yeah. 
I know, but I remember this one episode so vividly because it was about music and they went to the studio and as artists would come in and play, she would absorb their talent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always wished I could do that. <laughs> so I think that's why it stuck with me because I was like, damn, that'd be really cool if I could just like Matrix download all these skills. That's a good show. There's a bunch of shows like that from the early 90s. Like, uh, I don't know if you know Erie, Indiana. I don't know that one. What is that? It's it's basically like a little kid X Files. It had the same dude that was in Hocus Pocus that played Max Omri Katz, except he was uh, living in Erie, Indiana, and basically he was the molder, the teenage molder, and investigating all the weird things going on. What I definitely did not hear about that, but I loved Hocus Pocus. Were you always a theater kid? Do you recall your very first time on stage? I like to say that I had kind of one foot in and one foot out the door with acting for quite some time. My earliest production uh, as a kindergartner, I think I refused to go on to the stage. I was too scared. I didn't want to be in public. I didn't want to be have everyone looking at me. So I refused to go on stage and my teacher had to come on and say the lines and do the thing. But then in high school, I got into drama because my friend wanted to audition for the school play, but didn't want to audition alone and asked me to audition with her. And I very begrudgingly was like, fine, but I don't want to do the play. I'm only doing it to support you. And then I ended up getting cast and she did not womp. (laughs) Uh, We're still friends. It's cool. But that's how I literally got into doing theater. It wasn't until high school. I majored in it in college as well. But then I think, you know, it was always a question of, I, you know, I had a lot of different interests growing up. One of the things that attracted me about acting is that it is so multifaceted. So I could take all of the different things that I was interested in and combine them into one. And I really enjoyed the craft of acting. But I wasn't convinced that I wanted to pursue it professionally. It has a very different quality. You just have to be a lot more serious about it. It's a lot of hard work. You make a lot of sacrifices. And I knew that I was capable, if I wanted to, do a lot of other things. I could easily go out and find something else because I'm smart and I'm capable and the world is my oyster. So I think I was waffling about that decision for quite some time. And I kind of did acting, but also kind of didn't because I was also working full-time other jobs and then sort of doing regional theater acting. And then I kind of realized that even in my normal jobs, I was not stimulated enough. I was bored, I was miserable, and I missed the challenge the challenges that acting provided. So then I kind of made the conscious choice to quit that job, apply to grad school, and have that be kind of the commitment that I'm making both to myself and to the world at large that I've made my choice, I'm serious about this, I'm pursuing it professionally, I'm gonna go back to school, we're gonna get the training, and I'm gonna be an actor, and this is the move. So that's kind of what grad school represented for me, and that's when I really, really got both feet into the water of acting and committed. So during your time at school, did you have any personal favorite roles that you played on stage? Oh, yeah. So I did, um, I went to school at Lambda and I did their classical acting master's program. So that's a lot of Shakespeare. We did a production of Troilus and Cressida and I played Ulysses, which is a super fun role. It's a little... Cassius from Julius Julius Caesar. He's very 
smart and shrewd and cunning, very politically cunning. So that was a really interesting role to unpack and kind of navigate the the different political dynamics that are taking place. There's a romance and then there's also deep politics, internal politics happening at the same time within Troilus and Cresta. So usually when I speak with a lot of actors who have worked extensively in theater or prefer theater, they kind of struggle going from working with Shakespeare and some of the greatest writers of all time to not that there's not great TV and other writers, but it's just you're going from regular stuff. You know, is that something that you struggled with? Well, I think I got very lucky. I think video games in particular, the worlds are big. They're heightened worlds, so they support heightened stakes, heightened language, heightened acting. I think some video games, you know, tonally you have to match whatever game you're in. But again, I think the games that I've been in have skewed a little bit more fantasy, which can support a little bit bigger of bigger emotions and bigger stakes and bigger expressions of character. So it was it felt very much like a really natural sidestep for me coming from theater and Shakespeare and then landing in the world of video games and voiceover. In the same vein, people that have worked in voiceover and motion capture say the same thing that I've spoken to, that they almost feel like motion capture is an extension of the stage. Yes, I echo that. I, I agree with that for sure. I think it's kind of unique in that it feels very much like the meeting place between theater and on camera because there is the really more technical component that you have to work within those restrictions of that's similar akin to on camera but then there's also the parts that are similar to theater are just that you know you're acting in a space where you are solely reliant upon yourself your body to tell the story and to create these vivid worlds around you and endow them as real. You don't have sets, props, costume, makeup. You don't have any of these other outer trappings to help tell a story. You only have your imagination. So to that end, what's so special about it to me is that it feels like it gets back to the root of why I think we all wanted to be actors in the first place, which is just about cultivating that sense of play that we had as children. It's about accessing our imaginations and world creation, living and breathing in new worlds and endowing things as real, making it believable. So that's the fun. That's the fun of it. This is another question I like to throw at all actors because as a layman, non-actor, I feel like the term method acting is sort of become muddled. So what does the term method acting mean to you and what is your method? Oh, Lord, I'm not a method actor, so I'm not the person that can tell you this is exactly what it is because I don't do that and I've never trained in that. I do a lot of physical work with my acting. And I always think, you know, I think the difference is method actors will keep the character with them. They kind of live in that character for an extended period of time. I'm very much of the camp that sometimes it's harder, easier said than done, but it's acting at the end of the day and the character is separate from me. And I work very physically, so I use a lot of different techniques like lobbing or animal work to, or Michael Chekhov's um, psychological gesture. That kind of stuff helps me key into character and find things, maybe from the, working from the inside out, I'm finding it in my body and then putting language to it and figuring out what it is that I'm responding to and why I'm responding in this way. So that's kind of how I work and approach, but 
yeah, everyone has their method. I think that's the beauty of acting and craft is that you find the things that work for you. If method acting is what works for you, great. I used to be a very, um, what I called more of a heady actor. I was really interested in analytics and diving into text and breaking everything down and understanding everything and creating backstories. And I realized gradually through grad school, actually, that I think that wasn't serving me. It was making me act from here and I needed to act from here. I needed to act from my heart, from my gut. So once I got out of my head and got into my body, that's when I started to really be able to access character and emotion in a more real and less manufactured way. So that I found, I had to find what worked through me, for me by trial and error. So how much work do you personally put into stuff that maybe we won't see on the screen? Maybe, I don't know, I know some people will make a journal for their character or maybe write a little brief bio on to answer some questions that they have personally about them. How do you do anything like that? Lord, it depends on how much time you have, quite honestly. Sometimes you're working on a character for years, Sometimes, like with Baldur's Gate 3, I had a week. Oh. I had to work really quickly. And you had to kind of trust then that you, I'd put in my 10,000 hours, I knew what I was doing, and I was able to make educated choices on the fly in order to meet the deadlines that I had to meet. And that's also when you trust in your team as well. You trust in your dev team and your voice directors and your cinematic directors. They are the ones that have the big picture. I have such a small picture. I'm just an actor. I only know what I immediately need to know within the context of my character. But I rely on my team to know the big picture and to guide me into making choices that are consistently supporting the story because ultimately it's not about me it's about how can i as the actor play this character in a way that best serves the story so it varies from role to role didn't have time to do that you know it just depends on how much time you have sometimes when you're going into the booth you don't see the lines until you're there mm. that's the first time i'm looking at the lines wow. so it all depends and you it's just about i think having put in the hours so that when you're on the fly you can make really quick choices and also be flexible and be able to take change if the director has to you might have one interpretation of the line and then the director's like actually you know what it's actually being said to this character as i do this so can you say it more like that and you have to be able to take those notes and take that direction um you don't have all the answers so i think the work the back work that I do mostly is about constantly, I guess, honing my craft so that I can be the most flexible and versatile actor that I can be when I'm in the booth and working on the fly. Because that's the majority of what we do as voice actors. You work on the fly, you have the lines in front of you. He tells you or they, she, they tell you a little like one sentence brief of, okay, you're battling this person, go. <laughs> <laughs> and you say the line. So, you know, you don't have a lot of context to work off of. So it's really a game of trust. And, you know, you say you're just a voice actor, but anytime you hear someone or you're just an actor, sorry, then someone says, well, I want to get into voice acting. You know, I have a great voice or I can do voices, but they miss the acting aspect of it. It's not just, you know, I can mimic voices or I can, mm -hmm. you know, I have a deep voice or it's, you have to be able to act and act on the spot. Like there's a lot of improv involved. Totally. And yeah, I think everything you said is absolutely true. If you're just mimicking a sound, you're only working from here. And acting is about heart and it's about gut, your guts. You feel things in your body. So I think you're separating yourself from the true 
facility, your true facility that you could have access to as an actor. And you're absolutely right. It's there's no such thing. You can't separate acting from voice over. It's voice acting. Right, it's all right. acting. So you need to be able to act. The voice alone is not enough. The voice alone is not want to get it's not what's going to book you the role. It's going to be your acting. So you need to have both. Wasn't it your intention to work your way into the voice over world or did it just happen naturally? Oh no, not my intention at all. It happened as a very pleasant surprise. I had just graduated from my master's program end of 2018. I moved to LA January of 2019 and was doing the actor grind as you do when you move to LA. I was unrepresented so I was combing these different casting breakdown websites that are kind of like pay to plays you pay a subscription service fee in order to have access to different auditions and breakdowns that you can submit yourself for and I was submitting myself for stuff and I happened to see this breakdown that I fit the specs for the other thing about video games is that everything is under NDA so oftentimes even now you know, there's project code names. They're not using the actual game name. So I've definitely booked things where I don't know what game it is. Mm. Sometimes until it comes out and then I'm like, oh, ah, okay, yeah, that, I did that one. I was in that. Sometimes <laughs> you never know what game it, it even is. So I, I found this breakdown, I fit the specs. Everything about what I had, the information that I had was fake information. The title, the character name, the script that I auditioned with, everything was fake. So I had no clue. All I knew was that it was this video game. Didn't even know I'd be doing performance capture. Didn't even know what performance capture was. <laughs> so I was just like, ah, oh, whatever. I'll dip my toe in, see if I like it. No biggie. Cut to a few rounds of auditions later. I've booked the job. I show up for the table read on day one and realize quite quickly from the attitudes and kind of energy in the room with the other people in the room that this is a big deal game and i still didn't know what it was and it wasn't until that table read i got to go home i finally had my script pages in hand and i researched and every name that i found in the script and every name that i found in my contract and figured out what game it was and that was resident evil village that was my first video game one of the first jobs that i booked when i first moved to los angeles and really created a career for me overnight once that game came out and once the character popped off so it changed my life in every possible way so when did you start work on the game i think it came out in 2021 so how long were you working on it mm -hmm. Worked on it for a few years. Uh, I think I we started in 2019 and worked through the pandemic a little bit, and then it came out May 2021. Now, for the voice, were you given much direction, or did you just kind of nail it and maybe they kind of guided you here and there? Certainly, there's guidance that goes on. It's really a conversation that you're having, I think, between you and the dev team, or at least me personally. That's one of the things that I find really important for me is to be working with people who are collaborators. I really don't consider my work to be precious. I'm, I want to find it together and to have this exchange of ideas that happens between creatives. That's the reason why you hire an actor is to have their creative input coming up against your creative input. And then what can those ideas generate together that is new and exciting? So I love those conversations. I think 
that what I brought into the audition with me in terms of general characterization for Lady D probably is the same as what happened in the game. I think that's probably why they hired me. You know what I mean? <laughs> that I was coming in with the correct attitude and general flair. Right. And then you kind of tailor things. Once you actually know real information about the character, then you can make specific changes as you say this line or that line or figuring out, oh, what are the relationships that I have that are important to me and how do those relationships define how I act and behave, especially in those group scenes with the other four lords and Mother Miranda, or what are the dynamics with my daughters? How do I feel about them? Understanding relationships is also is always very, very important for me when I'm acting and when I'm trying to build a character. So in those group scenes, are you guys all there together doing motion capture or is it individually? Well, it... <laughs> I, you're going to hate me for sounding like a broken record, but it varies from game to game. Some games you are recording your own stuff individually, and then they're kind of splicing it all together in post and putting you all in the same scene together. Excuse me. In the case of Resident Evil, we were all there, which was mm. super fun. It's always really exciting, I think, to have people in the room because, as I said, you know, there's an exchange of energies. You're sensing, you're picking up cues implicitly that your body is just responding to. And so it's really exciting when you have, I want to say, like playmates in front of you, people that you can really play off of mm. and respond to organically. And also their interpretation of a character will influence how your character responds to them. They might be bringing something to that character that then is what inspires you to be like, oh, well, if he's doing that, then I'm going to do this. And then, mm. and then it, you know, it's all a nice uh, waterfall effect in that sense. So we did get to play together and work on those group scenes together, which was super fun. You know, so obviously, you know, Resident Evil was well received and specifically your character, Lady D, got a lot of very good reception, a lot of interesting reception. How did, when, when did you uh, just realize how much of a jackpot that role was and what was your reaction to the more interesting reactions? Well, you're trying to be so diplomatic. Yeah. I'll say it, the internet was really horny, but it was hilarious. I mean, and also like, I understand she's gorgeous and amazing and all of these things. So I was like, yeah, totally, follow your bliss, man. Uh, I think it's helpful that the character doesn't actually look like me. It's, so it's, it's nice to have that kind of separation yeah. that allows me to step back and I, very much feel like I'm able to enjoy it as a consumer myself. And my personal stake in the game is much more reduced. So I'm able to just sit back and enjoy the ride, which is, I think, unique about video games as well. Yeah, I never expected any of that to happen, <laughs> for sure. I knew that Resident Evil Village would be a big deal, like the entirety of the game itself, because Resident Evil is such a huge franchise. And I fully expected the game to be massive and iconic. I never expected my character within that game to be iconic or to be the standout character that took over the internet, blah, blah, blah. It was, I mean, it's also just so comical because I was so naive. I had no idea what I was auditioning for. So then me going into the process, my very first video game, my first time doing performance capture, my thought process was just don't embarrass yourself. <laughs> don't fuck this up. Don't look like an idiot. 
do a good job. So they only, my only objective throughout the process of filming and recording the game was just do your best work. Be the best actor that you can be and make these scenes shine. And I think that's really the only objective that you can have. You can't focus on the outcome. I think if you focus on the outcome or try to shoot for a, a desired outcome, it's never going to come. The only way you can achieve that is by doing the work and doing the craft and finding something creative that is different and interesting and engaging. And you only do that through the act of love of creation and sitting there and doing the work. So I had no conception of outcome, no thoughts about it whatsoever. And then when she went viral, it was so unexpected and so surreal. And then I was also still under NDA and mm -hmm. couldn't talk about it. Couldn't tell anyone that I was the character that's blowing up everywhere. And I have a lot of friends that are gamers and we're posting and sending things on our group threads about my character. And I had to just kind of like sit there and twiddle my thumbs and kind of chuckle to myself in the dark <laughs> corners of my room. Uh, <laughs> so it was a really interesting experience to kind of watch this happen as a voyeur mm. almost because I couldn't say anything. And then, you know, definitely felt the pressure of, okay, she might've gone viral, prior to the game but then once people play the game it's got to measure up otherwise it's going to totally flop so then was just kind of hopeful that the in-game performance would be equally as satisfying as the hype beforehand right. so yeah <laughs> and it was Blue. do you play at all or did you watch it to see your work at all i confess not a gamer uh so have not played i'm really bad with hand-eye coordination <laughs> tried to play as Lady D in mercenary mode <clears throat> failed miserably. It was a disaster. Uh, I just kept like running into walls. I couldn't figure out how to turn and run and do all these things simultaneously. Anyway, I played soccer, didn't do hand sports. So yeah, it didn't end well. So I'm not a gamer, so I haven't played, but I have watched all the cutscenes and really enjoy watching cutscenes for games. There are so many YouTube videos now where they just feel like movies mm. and games are unique in that they're such long form narratives that you really have an opportunity to get a lot of character over the course of the game. Right. And I've been, I am a gamer and I've been enjoying recently Baldur's Gate 3. Uh -huh. uh, yes. Yeah. So uh, how you just mentioned that it was a two week, two, three week notice. What happened there? Oh, it was a week. A week. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it was a week. Oh, I mean, it was it was bananas. I had the request for the audition and then did a callback later that same week. And then the next day after the callback, I got notification that I booked it and we needed to get me on a flight on Monday wow. to go to London and record. So it was such a fast turnaround. I did a lot of my prep on the plane ride over to London. I sat there with my script on my little iPad. I have an app that will allow you to make notes and block out your scenes and whatnot. So I was able to kind of look over things quickly, but the game is so vast. The material was so large. I didn't even get all the way through. So then day by day, right. I'm kind of looking ahead a little bit. And I also don't know how they're structuring the sessions. I don't know if we're going to go in order. I don't know if we're going to jump around. Everything's different. So yeah, did the best I could with the time that I had. And then you rely on your on your creative team. And they are amazing at Larian. Everyone is so, so epic to work with. Just true collaborators, true creatives, so much value. They place so much value on every single person in 
involved in the creative process. I think that's what's really unique about Larian is that there's a real respect and professionalism that they are wanting to bring people onto the team that so that they can become a team so that we can work together and collaborate and they want an influx of ideas. So I really valued working with them. Everyone on the team, Tom, Greg, Adrian, uh, Jason, they were just such a pleasure to work with and so fun and allowed me to play. And we threw a lot of paint at the wall and figured out what stuck. And we've had to figure out what worked best for Oren, you know, where on the crazy scale is she gonna fall? <laughs> Let's dial it back. Let's dial it up. You know, we've really tried to find that that line where she fits. And we did that through trial and error. So I think never be afraid to make a choice and have it be wrong because it's just going to inform your next choice that will be maybe less wrong right. <laughs> until you find the right one. <laughs> so, yeah, they're just so amazing. I cannot say enough good things about them. They were just a joy to work with in every way. I know you said you're not a gamer, but that game, you you know the reception. That game is breaking pretty much every review record. I just wanted to ask you, as a voice actor who worked on the game, there's so many different choices as a player for the voice dialogues. Did you notice that there was a lot more voice lines in a typical game that you would work on? There are a lot of voice lines. We kind of cranked them out, but also I think really the companion characters are the ones that, I mean, they worked on that game for something like four years. They have thousands and thousands of lines of dialogue. I had definitely plenty of lines of dialogue and you're kind of, what's unique about it is that you're working, lines can kind of, depending on player choice, a scene could unfold in a myriad of different ways. So you're kind of recording each line individually so that then depending on player choice, the then appropriate line is being subbed in as they go. So in that sense, you know, what's unique about it from a performance perspective is that you're kind of recording some of the same stuff over and over again, but with these slight tweaks. But then I found it kind of liberating because it allows you as a performer to not just say the same thing over and over again, but to look at the change and say, okay, how can I add a new color or a new flavor to this version of the line as opposed to that version of the line? It gave me more opportunities to find those colors within Orin's character and play and express myself and flesh her out a little bit more. So that was pretty fun. It certainly sounded like a headache to keep track of. <laughs> their end, yeah. they had a whole spreadsheet that made my brain melt the second I looked at it. It's such a behemoth it's such a massive undertaking on their part and what i'll also say about larian studios i think part of why the reception of the game has been as successful as it has been is because they are so passionate about what they do a lot of the people that work at larian they're also fans they also play baldur's gate one and two and play DD &D and so are coming into this not just as a job but as fans themselves as creatives and people who genuinely want to see the success of this game and mm -hmm. want to further the story in a positive way. So you can really feel the heart and the passion behind the scenes when you're working with them too. And I think it shows in the game. It does. Gamers love Larian because they've been around for a while and they've kind of been like the indie darling and now they're big and they still have the indie heart. So that's why we love them. We love them. It's <laughs> so special. Yeah. I speak with a lot of actors and musicians, both sort of professions that deal with stage fright. How did you eventually overcome that issue if you've dealt with it? Yeah, totally. I think, as I mentioned 
when I was younger, I did not want to get on stage, period. I did mm-hmm. not want people looking at me, period. Growing up there, I moved, because I moved schools a lot, some of my education changed just because I left one school, moved to a different one where their educational system wasn't set up the same. Anyway, one of my previous schools, we did one semester of drama, one semester of art, and then you had to pick which path you were going to go down for the rest of your time at that school. And I hated drama. I found it so scary. The idea of improv also was so terrifying. The idea of generating new content, horrible. And I was going to pick art. And I was totally not interested in drama. I was going to go down the path of art. And then I changed schools. And my friend asked me to audition with her. And then I got landed into drama. That's how it all shook out. But I really hated it. And there was something about it that felt quite vulnerable. I didn't want to be standing up on stage speaking, I think is what it was. But what helped me is once I fell in love with the craft of acting, I actually find it much easier to, I don't get a lot of stage fright now because I'm playing a character, I'm not myself. If I'm, I get more nervous when I'm public speaking as me Mm. in interviews like this than I do when I'm playing a character because then I'm disappearing into somebody else. I'm not myself. All I have to do is pay service to this character and pay service to the story. And then if I can do that, then we're golden. So I can kind of hide a little bit behind these characters and preserve my anonymity or not feel as vulnerable because it's not me, it's this character. Mm. So that's what really helps to me. I think if if you can take yourself out of the equation and just have the objective be about disappearing into somebody else, then that helped me. What would you say is the best acting advice you've received in your career and who gave it to you? Oh, that's a tough one. That's a big question. Best acting advice. I don't know. <laughs> I think I okay. I don't know. Remember? I don't remember who said this to me. I'm panicking. I don't remember who said this to me, but I had somebody at some point say, "Once, once you walk down your path, it's already been tread, and nobody else can follow it," or something like that. So the point is, <laughs> the point is to break down my ineloquent sentence that doesn't make sense, never try to replicate what somebody else is doing, is done. Mm. You can look at it for inspiration, but once they've done it, it's already been done. You can't then do it because it's already been checked off. So now you have to find your own way, find your own path. I think in general, the more successful, you will be more successful as an actor, the more you investigate who you are as a person and what makes you unique and find the ways to bring your unique set of talents and skills into the work. As I mentioned before, the voice has been the cornerstone of my training and kind of the thing that I bring with me into all of the different jobs that I do. That's my unique sparkly Maggieism, mm-hmm. and everyone has to find their own unique thing. That's the thing that helps me book jobs. And once you, the more unique and specified you can become, ironically, the more universal your appeal will become as well. Yeah, nobody specific, but those are just things that I've gleaned. Yes. (laughs) So uh, another question I like to ask everyone, just because you never know. Have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal? I don't think I have. To be honest, I wish I could say that I have. I loved hearing my other friends' ghost stories or looking at the family portraits where something blurries in the background. (laughs) 
But I can't say that I've ever had the joy of experiencing that. That's a bummer. I'm going to go hang out in some graveyards hey, after this. That's how you get, that's how you take care of that. Um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll take care of it. Check in, check in, uh, in a month. I will. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> Have you seen any good movies lately? I don't no. know. <laughs> I don't know. I confess it's been a really long time since I've been to the theater. Me too. So I don't know if I've seen any good movies lately. I watch a lot of animated movies for fun as feel good things. So I kind of stick to the classics. I love to rewatch and reread things. I'm in a book phase at the moment, so I haven't really been watching things of late, but I really enjoy rewatching and rereading and getting back to the warm fuzzies of, oh, this is a comfort book. This is a comfort movie. Um, yeah. Philip Pullman, the, um, oh no, why can't I think of the name? Uh, Golden Compass series. That's hmm. a comfort thing. I will reread that every year. I have uh, been rereading Clive Barker, but not the super horror stuff. I've been reading The Thief of Always, which is like his child dark fantasy thing. Very good. Uh, the Thief of Always. What a cool title. Maybe I'll check that out. I haven't read that. So Maggie, just to put a bow on everything here, what's on the horizon for you? Can you share anything without getting in trouble? Ah, uh, yes. That's the key word. Yes. The joke of the running joke of video game actors is that we're always under NDA for something. So you rest assured you will hear and hear my voice see my movements in other games and things coming up oh that's a lie i can plug um this has already been released lamplighters league is coming out october 3rd that is a video game where i play you guessed it a villain so that will be very fun and exciting it's quirky it's fun it's campy it's it's a good good time and there's a lot of vo friends of mine that are in the cast as well so it's fun to work with them and other than that, you know, we're, I do autograph signings on Streamily. I'm going to a few different Comic-Cons and I'm now on Cameo. So if you're interested, you can get a Cameo video from me as any of my characters are just from me being derpy and me. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. And if my shop is currently open on Streamily, I'm doing a Baldur's Gate cast event through Streamily. So you can go to streamily.com slash Maggie Robertson to access my shop. So we're doing a cast event on October 7th, where we will be live streaming and answering fan questions. And then our shops will be open and then we'll be signing prints and it will be a grand old time. And that's what I'm doing. Awesome. You have a great thank rest you of your for day. Having me on. That's all I yes, got for thank you. Thank you. Fabulous. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Awesome. You too. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Maggie. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? 
The sacred Night Demon Crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.